From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's the show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. Each episode, our special guest will bring with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our special guest is writer-director Adam Egypt Mortimer. He co-wrote and directed Some Kind of Hate, contributed to the Holidays Anthology film, and his sophomore feature, Daniel Isn't Real, debuted to acclaim late last year and made our best of the year list. Um, you will be able to watch Daniel Isn't Real this Thursday, March 26th on Shutter. Welcome to the show, Adam. Hi. Thanks for having me. We are so, so excited to have you because we love Daniel Isn't Real. We did. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's awesome. I really Really appreciate that. Where did you guys see it when you saw it? Um, so I saw it as a screener um, on my Same. computer. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I, I'll assume that you guys have like awesome TVs and good sound systems because you watch movies all the time. Maybe. Um, yeah, I was I have, on I have like a, a nice th- TV. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's you know as long as you're not telling me you watched it on your phone. Then you know we're all oh. we're all good. <laughs> no way. I have the years. I have 
Terry got the soundtrack for me on vinyl for Christmas, so I listened to the, the oh, vinyl. Oh, amazing. So that's he pretty cool. He did such a good job. Yeah, the soundtrack uh, was made by a electronic musician uh, from England named Clark, who's who's kind of like a like a more contemporary sort of Aphex Twin type of guy. And, and this was his yeah. first soundtrack, and, and he did such a good job in the movie. And then when he made the record, he really sequenced it like, it's very different than yeah. you just kind of extract the music from the movie and he made it into its own experience. And, uh, and I just love it. Like when I first heard it as it was sequenced as a record, I was like, even if I wasn't involved with this movie, I would love this record. It's just, it's like, so he did such an insane job on that. Yeah. And actually, I mean, we're kind of, Terry, do you mind if we talk about the soundtrack no, now? Right, Ed. <laughs> Because I'm obsessed with the soundtrack and it's just like, it's such a beautiful, like it's such a beautiful combination of like electronic and kind of like beautiful dreamlike music and then also terrifying string instruments. And I would just love to hear like what the collaboration was like between you and Clark to create this kind of dichotomy of sounds that feels like Daniel and Luke. Yeah. I mean, so I, the, well, for those who haven't seen it, it's a movie about a kid's imaginary friend who comes back to him when he's a young man and things are fun and exciting for a minute and then they're manic and then they're horrific. And so it, I was trying to think about like, what it, what is the right music for that whole vibe? And, uh, and the thing that I landed on that I shared with Chris Clark was it should be like Bernard Herman, like the, the composer who did all of Hitchcock's movies and oh, yeah. Taxi Driver, things like, like that, you know, the most classic sense of like great thriller music. He had these big string orchestras. So like it should be like that, but it's fallen through some like horrific electronic threshing machine. Um, and so, it, you know, and, and, and that represents in a lot, it's like two different, it's like a duality. It's like this classic thing, but it's modern and horrific. And, and I wanted to capture this sense of like big, paranoia that's in that music and also just like the internal sound of madness and uh and you know so we talked about that a lot and we talked about requiem for a dream and the way that the score in requiem for a dream just goes on and on and on and is like relentless and exciting and horrific all at the same time so that was like the main conversation and, and we started talking before we shot the movie so he was even experimenting with music and sending it to us as we were going, as we were shooting, as we were just starting to edit. So we were really able to like build things around his sound, which was wonderful. That's amazing. That's so cool. I love hearing about how directors work with um, composers. I, I'm not a musician, but I think like, I really love soundtracks, especially horror soundtracks. So it's just cool to hear how it all came together. Cause it's just like the soundtrack is just such a good, part of the movie but now we can back up a little bit we kind of just dove right in <laughs> to the movie we just dive um, right in kind of people yeah, yeah exactly yeah. well so kind of kind of going back a little bit because I, I let's stay on this this music track for a minute um because your your first movie some kind of hate i watched that for the first time this weekend um and i noticed um a couple different like threads between that movie and your your sophomore feature Daniel isn't real in terms of, of the music, whereas like some kind of hate kind of had um, a metal influence to this. And like, um, I love your idea what you're explaining with Daniel isn't real with the kind of like going through kind of like an electronic, a thresher, because like it kind of gives me industrial vibes and reminded me of some of like the nineties industrial rock that I used to love and listen to. Um, but you seem to have a musical connection to your, to your work. Is that, is that, um, on accident or is that purposeful? Yeah, no, I, I'm definitely obsessed with music. I was a musician. I, I mean, I guess I could say I am still a musician, but before <laughs> I became a filmmaker, I was 
devoted to being a musician. That was the thing that I was doing first. Um, oh, wow. And I was in a metal band a long time ago. Oh, really? I played guitar oh. in a metal band. But then I sort of evolved from playing metal to playing really experimental music. Like I, I played the electric sitar and I had like oh a, a, a metal box from the fifties that just buzzed and I would run it through like nine <laughs> different effects pedals. Oh and my then God, that sounds amazing. When, when I would try to touch it to adjust the dials, I would get like a horrible electric shock and I would like <laughs> sing through a big plastic tube and like I toured a little bit and it and I sort of had this concept of this band that there was like a big UFO cult and we were just the sort of musical outreach of the cult like that isn't actually true but that was sort of the uh, like the concept of what the band was um so yeah I was always very into music and then I gave up music like very consciously I was like I'm gonna stop playing music and give away my musical instruments and focus on becoming a filmmaker because I felt like it would be impossible to sort of do both all all the time. Do you know what I mean? Like, so yeah. I, there was a certain point where I was like, you know what? I've had a nice time. Like, I recorded a couple of records. I went on some tours. This is super experimental, and I feel like I've done with it what I wanted to do. So I'm laying it down. I'm laying down the electric sitar, and I'm <laughs> picking up the whatever you pick up when you become a, a picking up a great big box of despair and becoming a filmmaker. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah. So that. then when it came time to be able to, and then, you know, and, and I got my sort of real, I guess, career start as a filmmaker doing music videos, okay. and, which obviously, you know, has a very intense connection to music and, and to thinking about how visuals go with music and cutting to the rhythm and things like that. So I think that's always, deeply informed what I do. And then the thing that has been so nice in finding partners, uh, partnership with Spectre Vision, who um, produced Daniel Isn't Real, and they're also the people who produced Mandy and Color Out of Space and Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. It's Elijah Wood's company. Um, they are super into music, like they obsess about music. And so when we started talking about the who was going to compose, who was going to do the score, what's the score going to be like for Daniel. They were really on top of it. And they had, they suggested Chris Clark to me and, and, and Daniel Noah specifically at that company, like worked very closely with me and with the composer to, you know, make it good. So, yeah. So, so I guess music, uh, music is my life, man. It's funny. So having, <laughs> having given up on music for a very long time, it, it's something that, for years and years and years, I was always like, well, I'm trying to become a filmmaker and this is really hard. It's a really difficult life. And how do you get a movie made? I kind of wish I was just hanging out, playing my guitar sometimes, but I didn't. I had gotten rid of it. But then when I was working on Daniel, I was like, you know what? I think I'm finally a uh, professional filmmaker. I really feel like I can finally feel like I'm a professional filmmaker and, and then inspired by hanging out with Chris, who was doing the music, I bought like a cheap $99 midi keyboard and so i would come home from editing daniel and get a little bit high and record <laughs> music which is like what i was doing for the first time in like a really long while and by the end of daniel i had recorded uh about like an album like a concept album that i'm planning oh, to release maybe later oh, this year so cool. um, That's awesome. Awesome. and it's funny because i was like um 
I gave up on music because I was like, I don't want to have hobbies. I need to dedicate myself to making movies. But then once I really felt like I was making movies, I picked up the hobby again of making music, I guess. Um, so, yeah. So that's been my music trajectory. And um, yeah, cool. that's the trajectory. So <laughs> what about the horror trajectory? Like, where did that start? Like a love of horror and wanting to you know, just watch horror and be in the horror community. Like, where did that start? Yeah, that. I mean, that. It's like as far back in my memories as I can remember. I'm. Okay. I'm, I assu- I'm sure it's the same with you guys too, right? It's like. Yeah. yeah. I, I like. You know. I, I mean, it's funny because even in the in the concept of what your show is, Mary Beth, when you were like, "What's a movie that traumatized you?" I had to sort of. Scr- I, I feel like I structured. Part when I think about my life being interested in movies, it's kind of structured around a thing that traumatized me. So you know, like I have this memory of seeing an animated Raggedy and Raggedy Ann and Andy movie. Yeah, yeah. I, and I haven't seen it since. I must have been like possibly pre-linguistic when I saw it, but it was <laughs> fucking horrifying. Uh, you know, when you're tiny. So that was like my first memory of a movie is something that really frightened me and then my next memory is seeing Watership Down which Ooh. I'm, oh. I'm still not over that Ooh, one like I'm still I. totally ruined by that movie oh, I mean I, you know for people who haven't seen Watership Down it's it's essentially an apocalyptic animated rabbit movie so you think like oh throw this on for the kids he'll like it and it's got like a scene where the rabbit warren is bulldozed and they're all just like screaming and swimming through tunnels of rabbit blood it's and like, absolutely it's terrible like my fifth yeah. grade teacher put that on in class and was like, uh-huh. "It's a good, it's a good movie to watch." <laughs> like when it's raining and you can't go to recess. Meanwhile, I was watching this rabbit get stuck in a snare and it's like choking on its own blood, and everyone is like watching him die. And I was like, "What is this fucking movie? <laughs> this is horrible." I yeah, and they're on their way it. to find. Oh my god, you have to see. I mean, it really is like the most horrifying movie. <laughs> it is awful. It's, there's a there's a character. One of the main characters is like a psychic. And he knows that an apocalypse is going to happen to the Warren and he's and nobody believes him. And he's just trying to round up like the rabbits so they can leave. And there's a black rabbit of death, this like uh, sort of horrific spirit of death that comes and collects them when they die. And they find a Warren of rabbits who are like a fascist dictatorship rabbit Warren, where if you do something against the leader, they rip your ears off. I mean, yeah, I forgot about that part. <laughs> yeah, you, you successfully blocked it out, and I apologize <laughs> for bringing it to the surface. But if I have to suffer, you have to suffer. Um, so, and then, and then I have another, and then probably the movie that next. I mean, you know, at a certain point, I saw Star Wars and whatever funny movies that I loved too. But just sort of marking things that horrified me. I American Werewolf in London was a movie that I saw when I was very young that I couldn't even get through because just the first third or half of it ruined me for life. Um, are you guys, do you, are you familiar with American world in London? Oh, yeah. Have you seen this movie? Yeah. yeah so like I love that the movie. dream sequence where the like Nazi pig Nazi, demons come in and yeah. machine gun his family. Like what the fuck is that? What yeah. is happening? So, um, so, you know, so I guess it's like the groundwork had been laid. I was like, oh, entertainment is is just like a horrifically violent, traumatizing experience. Okay, cool. <laughs> I guess I'll seek that out for the rest of my life. So, yep. 
at a, at a certain point, wow. uh, you know, in that journey, I had I was like a hardcore uh, Fangoria fan, and I was going to like I, I won a costume contest at a Fangoria convention in Boston one year when I was a kid. The juniors division of the costume what contest. What was your costume? My costume was um, Jason from Friday the Thirteenth Part Seventy Two. So wow. I, I did like kind of like a really long white beard and some like old man arm wrinkly arm makeup and um and the hockey mask and a big knife. But I also had like a walking stick and I like hobbled up to the stage. <laughs> that, that is amazing. Concept. Very good. <laughs> that is amazing. That definitely should win. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. So yeah, and I was you know I I I at a certain point when I was a kid, my mother knitted me a Freddy Krueger sweater. Um, Hell yeah. You know, like which was a, a true ex- expression of both love and acceptance of who I was. <laughs> absolutely. So did did uh, did your family nurture uh, your horror movie obsession? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I would. I I got very into special effects makeup for a while, like around the oh, time okay. I was probably in like middle school or something. And 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 I found there's this amazing book written by Tom Savini <clears throat> that's about both sort of his life and all of the effects he did. And you know he did the Friday the Thirteenth movies and the Dawn of the Dead movies. And mm-hmm. um, he is like a super genius at ripping people apart on film. He did Creep he really Show, is. Uh, and he's also you know what's fascinating about him was that he was a a Vietnam vet. He was a photographer, like an infantry photographer. So he was constantly up close to like really horrible, violent things, which clearly influenced his entire life and career and how good his career is, but probably also, I mean, clearly harmed him in in a lot of ways. Um, But I was super obsessed with him and, and his work. And I would, every time friends of mine came over, I would cast their face in uh in plaster and then make like a latex thing like i would my friends would come over i would dress them up like zombies and we would go out and stop cars in like full zombie regalia like i think when i was younger than that i would disappear into my room and then just like come out as some character so you know like creature the vampire and show it to my parents i was like here's what i am today and kind of like act like that character (laughs) for a while they were very entertained god bless them um, so yeah, How, that was like, any, did you have any siblings? Oh, oh no. Does that okay. sound like somebody with siblings? No. <laughs> I, okay. I didn't want did to put it that way. I was going to be like, were you an only child? Cause that sounds accusatory, but like yeah. it was no. a thought, but I needed to ask it. <laughs> no, I was, I was in my own world, which is coming in really handy now that we're in quarantine. Let me tell you, oh, yeah. it's nothing new for me. Less I'm people, just, I'm just, <laughs> oh, less people to check in on, but also, <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, horror horror was always there. And then for a while it went away, like around the time when I start, when I was doing like music video, when I kind of got into a filmmaking career, that's not what I was doing right off the bat. But then I kept thinking about I, I had the opportunity to do these horror short films around the time I was making music videos. And I was able to sort of, I, I had this sense of combining like experimentalism with horrific nightmarish imagery. And that, that really charged me up and sort of set me on a path. And then I started working towards being able to make horror movies specifically. And then magically like that, it happened. (laughs) (laughs) 
So it sounds kind of like um, you kind of always wanted to be involved with with film at, in, in some way bec- from from working on like the, the uh, makeup in effects and like um, going on to like the making those those short films. Have is that is that is that something you'd always wanted to do then? Yeah, it was something I was always really interested in. Yeah, but. I, I, I think there's a weird it's, – it's interesting because now that I'm so committed to it and in the middle of it and sort of in the middle of a career of it, looking back on it, it was such a jagged, broken, winding road. Like I didn't go to film school, mm-hmm. so I wasn't you know at the age when you're sort of supposed to be going, what am I going to be? Like I didn't know and I didn't I, – for some reason I couldn't commit to it enough and, um, and I wasn't sh- – I just like there, – there was – I think I had a sort of – depressive uh, uh, like inability to grasp like i have to choose one thing and become that thing because it the, the sense of that felt like daunting and limiting and weird or or like i was above it or something i don't know can you relate to that vibe it's like i like i don't know what to, like i like this and i like that and like how do i decide i don't know like and then you'd sort of imagine going down a path and like is that it then i'm just going to do that then i'm going to die and that's my whole life like i was kind of that's my every day that is my (laughs) right yeah i was hoping you would say that you can rely on me like wait does anybody know what the fuck i'm talking about well (laughs) it's like that weird thing where it's like especially because like terry and i both have full-time jobs that aren't related to horror film and like horror is our passion and it's just like weird i feel like not to speak for Terry, but like for myself, it was like this weird thing where it's like, I like making money and having like a salary, but I also like really want to do what stimulates me creatively. It makes me happy. And it's this like weird thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, we kind of talked a little bit about m- my job, but uh, you know, it's before we start recording, but like, it's not exactly the most creative job. <laughs> it's very analytical in some, in some cases. And I just found myself wanting to like, wanting more, which is why I started my, my website a couple of years ago. Cause I just, I needed this outlet to do something that was like feeding that side of my brain. And it, so, so yeah, I, I can definitely feel that kind of like that pull of what is it that I really want to do? Um, almost every day. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, yeah. We, and, and maybe it's okay to feel that way. I, I think this is the, this is the big thing that I'm, I'm getting at in my life now is that like all of the time that you spend, wondering if it's okay to feel the way that you feel is the thing that's the thing that's the problem like wondering what you should do and and not knowing and not committing and then splitting in two different like that's all totally cool but beating yourself up about it is the part that sucks yeah and i think the you know like the next phase of my life that i got into when i did super commit to being a filmmaker and it took so long before i could make a movie you know, on the timetable of years and years and years and years yeah. where you're, where you're kind of like not making a lot of money because you've really tried to make this specific choice, but it's that it's not happening. And like, I, I mean, the amount of times where I would just, I would start to convince myself like, oh, I'm dying of cancer right now and I will never have lived up to my potential and I will never, never have shared the thing that I feel like I'd be good at. Like those feelings are so bad for you and looking back on it now i can be like it took me eight years to make daniel isn't real and it was totally worth it and it was a movie that affects people and i'm proud of it and if i got hit by a bus tomorrow i'd be like well i made that one really cool movie like and all of the time that i spent during the time it took to do that was such unnecessary anxiety 
that I should have just been spending watching more movies on the Criterion channel <laughs> instead of hating myself, you know? Also, I, I mean, this seems like kind of a perfect time to be talking about this because I, I, I feel really bad for, I, I mean, you, you talk about how you spent, you know, eight years trying to get Daniel isn't real made. And I think about all of the film festivals that have been canceled recently because of, you know, the coronavirus and then all of these independent filmmakers and, and creatives that have been, you know, toiling away for forever trying to get their, their movie made. And now a lot of their places where they're premiering it are no longer there. And I just, it just, it's so sad. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's such a bummer. I mean, I have a lot of friends who had things lined up for both South by or Tribeca. Um, yeah. People who had been, you know, who, who, who were like, I, I mean, it, you know, I think back to one year ago, Daniel premiered at South by and it was like a life changing event. It, mm -hmm. And, and I, it's like, I mean, it's, it's such a catastrophe to, to cancel things like that. I mean, I mean, I'm hoping that these movies will sort of rise to the top in the next wave of festivals after we get through this thing. And, you know, we'll be seeing them at Toronto. We'll, we'll see them at fantastic fest and things like that. Like I can only hope that they'll sort of, they're just deferring the thing that gets to happen. It's not just completely crushed, but yeah, it's, uh, it's really sad. And on top, you know, I have a friend who had something premiering at Tribeca and had just gotten a huge project greenlit that was a show he was going to run. And then it, canceled because of oh. the, the the outbreak you know at the yeah. same time like in the same week that happened we had we had talked with with bria grant and she had oh my um, god yeah she, she was so excited both. about She's lucky both and yeah yeah her two movies were going to premiere both at south by southwest and then at, at tribeca and so i i just it really it really kind of brings to light the importance of festivals because I, it, everyone is just so devastated that their films aren't going to be able to premiere at these big things that, like you said, with Daniel isn't real, kind of shoot your film into a different trajectory, depending yeah. on how, how received they are. Yeah. And then, you know, from, from South by, I was able, because of South by, I started to get invited to so many other fests. I had really made this commitment once it started happening that I was going to try to go to every possible festival I could get to, um, whether it took me to South Korea and Spain or South Florida, like I was just everywhere with it, which yeah. was amazing. And, and, and also sort of harkened back to my days of wanting to be a rock star. Cause it was really like being on, on <laughs> tour on with the it. Tour. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I, I just, I think there's hopefully so many exhibition opportunities and I think the community is going to take its time over the next couple of months to figure out how it's going to work. And I'm sure we'll, we'll, you know, we'll be seeing movies like, lucky in the fall in yeah. the exact right kind of circumstance yeah yeah going to back to daniel isn't real for for a moment um so in in my review when i was watching it um i i kind of and i don't know if this is because i come at things from a queer perspective but i kind of was like interested in some of the the homoeroticism underneath between the two characters was that intentional or am i just reading that because yeah um, no i mean i loved i loved your perspective on it i love what you wrote about it and i and you know, I think that you were uniquely situated to to want to write about that, as were a lot of the younger women that wrote about the movie. Mm. Um, and 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 that it, you know, it, it that's definitely that's all there. I mean, what what was really important to me in in the terms that you're describing is that I wanted to present the way that young men 
the the way that their friendships work at that age, yeah. which is something that I think is like kind of unexplored in films. Like we have a lot of movies, buddy cops. You know, we have mm-hmm. like adult men who are like. Bah. Those kind of movies, <laughs> right? I think we all yeah. know what I mean. I, yeah, that oh, yeah. genre of movie. I think the fact that I am inarticulate of expressing it speaks to the inarticulateness of the characters, not of the exactly. movies. The movies are articulate in their understanding of the world, but these characters are like, yeah, right. um, and and we have a lot of movies about like boys, you know, like the Stand by Me, uh, kind of or ET or that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, but you know, when I was in college when I was, you know, whatever age you are, 18, 19 years old, like there is this like intensity with a friend that you will choose. And you're, you're no longer like 14 year olds who are like, what is a sexuality? Like, what is a world? You're just, you know, I went to school in New York city and it, and you're just like just thrown into the, you're just in the world and, but you have no rules because you're in college and it's fucking crazy. And like, there's a closeness and an emotional intensity uh, in, you know, two young men being friends that I think is so interesting and vibrant. And so that was, you know, an important part of kind of creating the vibe in the movie and, and the vibe around those characters. And, uh, you know, and I wanted, uh, I mean, and, you know, to be clear, people who haven't seen the movie, it's like, I'm sort of having my cake and eating it too, because Daniel is both a, a non-human entity, imaginary friend thing. But but I wanted, I was very specific about shooting the movie like they are two best friends, like that's yeah. how it had to feel. And um, and in thinking about what Daniel was, he had to be so charming and sexy, like you want to be him. It's like, do I want to be you or fuck you? I don't even, I can't right. even tell the difference anymore. The, the emotions are so confusing and overwhelming. And um, and and already, and it's like, you know, it's so funny when you're making a movie because everybody has to be so beautiful and charming. Like I've already cast Miles Robbins, so now <laughs> the guy who he wants to be, who has to be so much sexier than him, like oh fuck, like Miles is incredibly charming and sexy, but he is. Um, so, but Patrick is you know has like a superhuman look and when i was explaining <laughs> when i was talking to my costume designer about what daniel should be like and really what everybody in the movie should be like i i told her i i need i want to, you to think about this like when people write about this movie they will all assume that i'm gay because of the way that we're going to film these young men and, the, and like the intensity with which i want to just love them yeah. the, in in the film um and and then you know and then on top of that there's a whole psychological thing uh, that has to do with that Daniel is an expression of Luke's own self and his better self and how do you relate in a you know narcissistic or sexual way with your own self or your own self idealization? Wow, that's wild. Because I I I when I saw the movie I kind of saw it as like this sexual tension between between the two of them but then I kept saying but technically Daniel is Luke. Like, what does that mean? And then I got too deep into my own head and feelings. Um, yeah. <laughs> to no, really but, come to the... a, but like to come to an answer, <laughs> but it is really fascinating to think about that, like, weird relationship to the self. And it's very complicated and very fascinating. And I hope one day I will have more articulate ways of talking about, about that. <laughs> but I think that is the, you know, the labyrinth that I invite you to go on. You know, it's, it's not so simple. And, yeah. and and so you can kind of just follow it through and and 
you know, so there's two sex scenes in the movie, and it was so important to me to have those sex scenes that, um, we, you know, that don't like it, they don't like grind the movie to a halt. They, in fact, expose character and push the plot forward and all kinds of things are happening. And each of those two characters is getting to express their sexuality in totally different ways. And then, but also they're there. (laughs) The other one is there in both cases. And the way that each of those characters relates to to that fact is, you know, so weird and, um, and interesting. And, and I think you can look, you know, I mean, there's, you know, there's a scene where, the Luke played by Miles is having sex with Sasha Lane, and then the camera p- p- pans up, and Daniel is just standing there on the edge of the bed watching <laughs> yeah. them. And um, <sighs> I love that so much, and it's so weird, but it's also I think you can. It, it's also like the way we are, like we see ourselves. Like I think you yeah. are constantly third person personing yourself and looking at yourself doing things in your weirdest. Or most mo- vulnerable moments, also. So it works in in those different ways. And so, kind of moving from that, like talking about the two of them and the sexual tension, I was really drawn to this as a portrayal about mental illness. I think I've ta- I interviewed you previously and talked about mm-hmm. this, but like I was recently diagnosed um, with like rapid cycling bipolar disorder, and it was such like. I don't know how to put like what word to use, but like it was a movie where I saw that I felt very seen and very understood in terms of representing a mental illness where you feel like you're split. And I'm obviously, well, not maybe not obviously, but um, Luke's mother in the film, um, she is, she is, she is, she is mentally ill. And it, it seems like she has some kind of schizophrenia and it's just like the way the film handles mental illness without it being, exploitative or gross is just like really important to me, especially because bipolar disorder is so often portrayed as something very bad. And while there are moments of violence in this movie, it was, it felt like the mental illness aspect was handled really well. And I just wanted to hear more from you about portraying mental illness on screen and like what you wanted to accomplish with this. I know that Daniel is technically an imaginary friend, but did you mean to really veer into this discussion of like mental illness, especially in young men? Yeah. I mean, I, First of all, that's really beautiful for you to say all of that, and I I really oh, appreciate it. Um, I I think that 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 aspect of it was what I started to realize I was able to bring to the story, or you know, one of the things that. So you know, it was based on a novel originally, yeah. and then I was writing the script with Brian, who wrote the novel, and um, I when I was thinking about how are we turning this into a movie and what experiences am I able to base this on? And like, what, what truth can I bring to it? The, um, the idea, the, the one idea of this will be relatable to everybody because we all struggle with, I want to be a good person, but also there's impulses and voices telling me to do things that aren't good. And how do I balance that? That was like the most general idea. Any, because I, I don't want to limit it to like, you have to have, an experience with mental illness to get the movie, right? Yeah. So there's this like general sense of how we all struggle in our in our minds to be people. But then more specifically, I started to realize, oh, I it, when I was in college, when I was the age of these characters, my best friend who I had been close to since we were we had gone to the same junior high, the same high school and then the same college, he had a horrific bipolar meltdown kind of schizophrenic break that that sort of unfolded over months 
and then resulted with me taking him to a mental hospital. And the, you know, so I was trying to draw on those memories and, and try to understand what was that like? What was that about? And it's, you know, that it's something you, you, you just asked me, Mary Beth, you know, if it was about men specifically and, and, I mean, in the sense, it's like, uh, you know, what I learned was that these kind of experiences happen to men at a certain age and then women at a different certain age. Right. Yeah. So it, it there's a tendency that a, a, a bipolar break happens to men when they're like 19 or 20 yeah. and women when they're in their mid 20s. Yeah. Um, and so I was re I really started to realize, oh, this story, like really, it, you know, it fits a kind of general pattern. So. I, so where's my opportunity to, to like really derive the the truth from that? And you, you know there was there was a couple one thing with with my friend was that we just didn't understand that he had a problem. And mm -hmm. this is something that I tried to get at in the movie. Also, is this sense that especially when you are 18 years old, every, you and every single person around you. I think we talked about this probably before, Mary Beth, right? Like, um, that you're all, everybody is acting kind of crazy because yeah. you don't even, you don't, you don't know what your identity is yet. Yeah. And you're like, well, maybe today I'll wear a lizard as a hat or, you know, like tomorrow yeah. I'm going to tweet that I'm going to run for president. Like, who the fuck knows? It doesn't, you know, you're like, you're trying it, you're very liquid and fluid and you're trying to see what your identity is, but yeah. that can, so there's no way to tell when somebody's identity has become, you know, like, lava instead of just liquid <laughs> yes. and and so you know we're we're all acting like assholes and if he happened to be acting just a little bit more like a weird asshole because he was making phone calls to ludwig wittgenstein there was no way for us to tell until it got so bad and so far beyond saving that it was like holy shit like we're, we're in this problem and and you know you can hang out with somebody who's having a manic episode thinking that you're all kind of in this together, having an energetic, youthful experience. And then three days later, you're like, he hasn't slept and I'm trying to keep up with him. And like, I'm exhausted. Like what the fuck is happening? Yeah. And, um, and so I, you know, that kind of exact feeling was what I wanted to capture in the movie. And, and, and I, and the way that I th was hoping, you, you know, that it would avoid exploitation, a a as you say, is that if I stuck to the truth of it, if I was like, I really under, I really understand something about this experience and I don't want to turn away from it and I don't want to glamorize it, but I want to be true to it. Like part of the truth of it is it's really exciting. Suddenly you are empowered. And the other part of it is that it's horrifying and you want it to stop. Like yeah. all, all of the feelings of it and trying to capture that with the color, you know, with the, the kind of the texture and with the, yeah. the music that we were talking about, like, like getting at all of those feelings and hoping that it was true. I felt like, well, if I make it as true as possible, then if some people don't like it, you know, it's funny. I found, you know, going on the kind of film festival circuit, it was like every time I showed the movie, people would come up to me and, and say, you know, I had an experience like this and, and this is really what it's like. I really feel seen. Every so often somebody would get really, kind of nasty with me about it and and challenge me and say like you, you know well, I don't know mental mental illness mental health exploitation but they would never say it's this was 100% of the time they would always say what would you say to somebody who thinks that the movie is exploitation or like what would you say about you know if the the mental illness is not treated and it but they were not coming out themselves from their own experience and saying like i felt like the movie was personally offensive to me they were like fishing for me to 
I don't know, confirm that it was wrong. Do you know what I mean? And I, I think mm-hmm. it, it's because like, it, but the people who really went through it or knew somebody that went through it were always kind of wrapped up in it. And I, I think that that was an interesting, like we're all very concerned about, are we seeing things represented that are wrong and that will be harmful? And I found that in, in this case, the truth of this kind of experience is so fucked up that you kind of just need to trust that the movie, hopefully I'm setting up the movie in a way where you're trusting that it's leading you into an experience that's honest. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd just like to piggyback on that real quick. It's just like the way you talked about where like you, you, you're doing something crazy and it feels really fun, but you also know it's fucked up. Like the way you have that portrayed with Luke and Daniel is a way I have felt before where you're like, this is really cool and I feel awesome. But in the back of your head, you're like, something is wrong. And like, I don't like where this is going, but you can't stop. And I think that was what really captured me because I've never really seen that on screen before. That feeling of like really fun, but also holy shit, like I'm scared and I'm not sure what's happening. Um, and it's really captured in such a personal way. So I just wanted to say thank you for doing that and providing me with an experience yeah. I did not know I needed at the time. So Oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, you're describing the, the anxiety we have about ourselves and it and it can be true in a really extreme mental illness sort of situation and it, and it can also be true in in daily life like you you uh, like i i've i sort of have such a structure of anxiety in my life that when things are going well i'll tend to start to freak out quietly in, internally yeah and be like oh my god something's gonna happen i definitely you know like oh, i just got this movie deal i definitely have stomach cancer you know like some sh- and like that's i've been able to reduce that in the past few years because i really started to notice that that was running my life but for a long time that was real it was like hard to be happy in any one direction and it, and then it, you're sort of like wait am i unconsciously forcing myself to be miserable because every time things start to look up i think something's going wrong that's you know, exactly um, what I, I, I have and i was diagnosed as ocd so i wonder mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> i like yeah. i have a very i catastrophize too it's awful it's it ruins your life man yeah yeah i know i mean i you know i here are the things i do i box regularly i do yoga regularly i meditate i do therapy and i take lexapro and i eat super healthy like i do all of these things right (laughs) all of these things just to sort of have a fighting chance of not being my own worst enemy just so i can get to like what i imagine is like a baseline of like oh now i can you know sort of focus on what i'm doing yeah (laughs) amazing i also take lexapro (laughs) i mean i you know i <laughs> I I fought off medication for so long in my life, you know, and I remember when I went to see a psychiatrist and I gave her that laundry list of things I just said minus the medication. I was like, I'm doing all these things, so I shouldn't need medication. I don't want medication. I already do yoga. And she was like, "Look, man, <laughs> if you're doing all of the stuff you just described and you still feel that way, then that's what the medic that's what medication is for." Yep. And I was like, "Huh. Maybe I <laughs> Maybe life is too short to have to feel this way all the time. Let me see what this is all about. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Terry. So, no, I, this is. I, I think this is an interesting and an important conversation to to be having. And I, yeah, I, I, it's, it's. I, I think that. Gosh, my thoughts are all over the place right now. But I, I think, I think that's what's kind of cool about Daniel isn't real is that it's. It's it's like art. You can come at, at it from many different angles and see different things and and see different aspects of it. And I think that's that's ultimately what makes uh, 
movie's so interesting. Um, but you are also working um, right now editing your next movie with with SpectraVision, right? Um, how is that going? It's Arch Enemy. Is it a it's a superhero movie of sorts? Yeah, it's called it's called Arch Enemy. Um, it is a superhero movie of sorts. It's like a a gritty crime science fiction psychotronic breakup movie. That, Hell yeah! Uh, <laughs> with with a, with, a, with a superhero thing happening it it um it stars joe manganello who um oh, oh, you yes. may know from true blood and magic mike magic mike and, uh, he's like he's essentially the sexiest man in the world so what i'm trying to do is build up this body of work <laughs> where people know oh it's an anatomy mortimer joint there's gonna be a really hot guy in this film like i, I just feel like i love this it's good cinema right so 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 joe plays a a man who's broken, alcoholic. He lives in a tent under a bridge, um, and he claims that he is a superhero from another dimension who used to have all these superpowers and save the world, but then he crash-landed here when he fell through a black hole, and he doesn't have any powers, and he doesn't have anything. And and then he gets involved with this kind of low-level uh, crime story with this brother and sister that he meets, and it um it sort of combines i don't know brutal violence with cosmic pondering and uh cool. a lot of broken heartedness um so yeah we 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 shot that already and i'm in the midst of editing um cool. That's and uh, yeah it's it's go- it's going well it, it's a funny thing it was way less budget than daniel was and so it was it was it was a really hard shoot it was the hardest shoot i've done um because we had such few days and 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 it's so ambitious um and i think there was even a moment when i was like wait i don't need to do this movie. i should wait and do this movie some other time when we can get more money and do it right and then and then i thought wait a minute man like i just spent decades begging the universe to let me make a movie if if suddenly I have the opportunity, I'll <laughs> yeah. just say yes, no matter yeah. what, no matter how horrific it's going to turn out to be. So um, so I did. That's cool. that's the side of it I fell on. Awesome. That's awesome. Is that um is that going to be hitting festival circuits or is there a, a release plan? Do you think for that? Yeah, I hope so. Um, it will pro- will probably be done with it by the end of the summer, and okay. so I mean you know I don't know I, I have no I can't say I have no yeah. idea where it will. I mean, I really don't know what will happen to it, but it will be, I think it will almost certainly be able to be seen by some people later this year. I can't wait. That is my commitment. (laughs) That is my very specific commitment to you. (laughs) And it's on record, so. (laughs) There's no backing out of that level of promise. Um, So... Terry, what have you been watching lately? So I, before we, uh, when we were scheduling this, I thought I was going to have a couple movies to talk about because I would, I was going to, I was planning on covering Boston Underground Film Festival, but Corona didn't happen. Um, (laughs) It really sucks. I, I feel so bad for people. I know. I was supposed to cover it too. I'm so sad. And for Kayla, Kayla, if you're listening, we love you. I'm so sorry you've had this stressful time as a PR person. (laughs) But um, I did – I'll cover this very briefly so we can get to the movie because I'm really excited about it. Yeah. So um, the movie that um, I actually just finished watching before we started recording is called The Platform. Oh, um, fuck. I wanted to see that at TIFF, but then I didn't go because I fell asleep because it was midnight. 
Is it good? Uh, it is disturbing as fuck. Hell yeah. Um, I loved it. When this is airing, you'll be able to watch it because it's hitting Netflix, Netflix uh, okay. on the 20th. Um, so oh, it'll shit, be out. the 20th. Hell yeah. yes. Oh, I'm so, so this excited. Friday... When we're, well, the Friday we're recording. Yeah. <laughs> a couple days ago when this airs. Um, <laughs> but, um, it's, it's basically, it takes place in this, uh, they call it the pit or the hole. And it's <laughs> this very long vertical tower with floors. And each, each floor is a cell with two people in it. And there's like a giant hole in the, in the floor and in the ceiling that just keeps going up and up. It's seemingly endless. They're, they don't know how many levels there are, but people have been to like level 200. And it's sort of like this kind of purgatory place where it, that people this this platform will come down from the ceiling and will have food on it or at least you hope it will have food on it because it depends on how far down you are in this level because the people above you will eat and they'll be gluttonous and they won't care about the people below because at one point they were below um and it and then randomly within 30 days people the level switch and so you could be at the top of the pyramid and then at the last thing if you're at the bottom and there's no food coming down to you because everyone else has eaten it oh god and it's just it i feel like it'd be a really good companion piece to like the par- to parasite okay um, that's what because I've heard. it's 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 definitely in the same vein as that i don't think it's as um clever or as as smart maybe as okay. parasite is but it is it is de- a depressing movie about mankind's base instincts for preservation of themselves without thinking of the people that are below them wow. when they themselves have been in that position before. And there it, it's just, it's, it's, yeah, it's a very dark, dark movie, but, um, really, really good. Like I'm, I'm still just trying to parse my thoughts about it but it'll be out there you guys should go watch it on netflix um really really dug it uh what about you mary beth so i caught up on kingdom hell yeah um i haven't finished season two but i caught up on season one um kingdom for everyone who doesn't know it's the zombie netflix show which is from a korean zombie netflix show um it's a period piece so it takes place um the Josian, yeah, but it takes place like in like the in the in the far past of Korea, (laughs) but like it's a beautiful period piece and it's creepy and really well acted. It's it's amazing. So you know, we're stuck inside for the next couple of weeks. Um, Add that to your list. I also watched um, this film from 2018 called Aniara. It's a Swedish film. That is very depressing and about uh, capitalism. And boy, oh boy, I watched it yesterday and, you know, <laughs> was not the right time to watch that movie. <laughs> it's just like very much about people being stuck in one place and um, the darker sides of humanity coming out. Um, not in like horrifically violent ways, but more just like these very sad ways. Yeah. Um, it's really good. I mean, like it's on Hulu. It's beautiful. Okay. It's like one of those sci-fi movies that is like you sometimes forget it's a sci-fi movie because it's just like it's like very it's like one of those like I guess highs I don't know how you would describe it it's like very emotional and very much about like contemplating your place in the universe more than trying to make it about the spectacle of space. That's my kind of my sci-fi. It's a sci-fi I like. I'm I'm looking at it right now it's, on yeah. IMDb. I mean, like it looks... it's, it's a movie that will put you in a very weird headspace, um, but it's really beautiful. Um, okay. So my brand of movie, really beautiful, yeah. but it's fucked up. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, so that's what I have. That's what I've been watching. Adam, what have you been watching? So there's a couple things. Uh, one is the French horror show Marianne that's on ah, Netflix. Yes. Have you guys seen oh, it? Yes. I, have not, has... I have not finished it, but I have watched part it's of it. It's so scary. Like, I was <laughs> really impressed by how scary it was. I, I think, like, I love that we're in this era of horror series, and um, often they're not scary. Like, I love... American Horror Story because it's just campy and crazy, but it's not like scary. Yeah, right. Channel Zero was terrifying, and mm-hmm. Marianne I felt like was just so unnerving. It was like as scary as you can get, and and it had such a sense of like, ugh. Um, so I really recommend that. I'm super into witches, and it just totally delivers on witch terror. Yeah, um, and I also uh, was fortunate enough before pandemic quarantine that i got to see the hunt oh and, i okay. have heard such like divisive it, things about the hunt it is so good okay. like i loved it like i was like shrieking with glee i mean there is so <laughs> i had no i had no idea there would be that much like heads exploding and bodies oh. ripped apart but like constantly oh, every like so surprising like Every moment, it was a shock. You don't even know who the main character is. It's you don't know what the fuck is going on. It's hilarious, and um, it makes it's kind of like a South Park episode in the way that it is kind of making fun of everybody. It's like the you know the the sort of leftist woke people are you despise them. Glenn Howerton plays this amazing version of that character. The people who, like everybody, every every aspect of culture gets equally kind of shot in the head, and it's so much fun. And then the the real treasure, the real surprise of it is that Betty Gilpin is just such a good actress. Like I've never, like yeah. she's in this movie, she is on the level of Nicolas Cage. Like she is doing choices that are so strange and so specific and so engaging. I was like, this is going to make her a superstar. And I hope that, I mean, I think that Universal just announced today that they're going to be releasing this movie. Is this one of the movies yeah. that they're, yeah, that they're releasing? The right? Hunt, yeah. The Hunt and The Invisible Man, among others. They're, yeah. um, and Emma. Yeah, Emma. Emma. And then Trolls or something? <laughs> a movie yeah. that I'm probably never going to watch. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if it wasn't quarantine quarantine season, I would say, you know, invite all your friends over, pay the 20 bucks and, <laughs> and watch The Hunt. But if it wasn't quarantine season, you wouldn't be able to do that. So it's all very confusing, Catch but it's an awesome too. movie. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to I think I'm going to try to watch that this weekend with uh, the little VOD that they're doing. I think it's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think cool. So too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure you will dig it. And um cool. and last thing, I just read a tiny little book that I want to shout out, which is it's a it's a it's a short story. I think it's just like 80 some pages, but it comes in a cute little uh, hardcover um, book. It's it's called This is Pleasure by Mary Gateskill. Hmm. I don't know if you know Mary Gateskill. She's a brilliant short story and novel writer. She wrote the short story that the movie Secretary was based on. Oh. So all of her all of her stories like since the kind of mid or late 80s are about these very intense layered relationship sexual unhinged subtle but also horrific and she's such a beautiful writer and this new 
story that she wrote is about it's 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 her take on me too it's about a oh. a, 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 lit, a very fancy literary publisher who has launched the careers of all of these brilliant women but then he is also like accused of all of these horrific things and it alternates between being told the story is told by him as the narrator and by a woman who has been friends with him for years and it's like the most subtle strange unlayering of this contemporary moment that I've ever read. And and so I really recommend it for, for people who want like a deep kind of emotional intellectual dive into the, the layers of that kind of thing. Hell yeah. Okay. That sounds right. like just the kind of thing I like to read. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I'm going to add that to my list right now. Yeah. Um, cool. So now that we've talked about what we've been watching, let's talk about the movie that you've brought with you today, Adam. Um, what are we discussing? We are discussing Pink Floyd, The Wall. Very which exciting. Which is a 1982 movie. Is there anybody out there? The memories. The madness. The music. The movie. The wall. So before we start discussing it, I'll just read a quick synopsis for those who are not familiar with Pink Floyd's The Wall. Um, so in this visual riff of Pink Floyd's album, The Wall, like I said, successful but drugged out musician Pink is looking back on his isolated childhood from the confines of an L.A. hotel room. Through a swirl of flashbacks and chemical-induced hallucinations, Pink recalls his lonely upbringing during which he built a symbolic wall to the world as he coped with the death of his father and the overbearing ways of his mother. So this is quite uh, a, rele- how- <laughs> a relevant film to watch now, huh? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, there, yeah, there are a lot of things are super relevant, one of which is that it's a guy sitting in his living room losing his mind, so we can all relate to that right now. <laughs> I know, I read the synopsis on Letterboxd, and it was about, I said it losing his mind during social isolation, and I was like, fuck. <laughs> I, what's interesting to me about that synopsis that you just read is that it uses all of these words that sound so passive like he's recalling and he's this and that I, yeah. and, and nothing about that synopsis suggests the, the the reality that this movie will fuck you up so badly okay. and like every scene of this movie is like just like a soul tearing I mean assault and uh right I mean it really they should is. just say that on, on the synopsis it doesn't matter what it's about it will fuck you up badly and so, that's it. Okay. The mic drop. <laughs> that's it. We're done. The interview's that's over. It. Bye. Yep. Um, so how old were you when you first saw this? And like, what was yeah. the context of you first seeing yeah. this movie? So I didn't see this when I was like a tiny, tiny child. I saw this when I was probably like 11 years old or something like that. Okay. And I had already been uh, exposed to Pink Floyd. I really liked their music. Mm-hmm. And um, it, I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting. I think that I got... I originally inherited a number of Pink Floyd records from a very close uncle who committed suicide. Oh, wow. And then I wound up with all of these records of his that I that I grew to love. Um, so th- there's like sort of already like kind of a, d- a disturbing connection there or, yeah. a, or a complex connection. Um, but I was I was really obsessed with the band and then um, and knew that there was this movie and, and it had this kind of 
mystical or, you know, mythical, like, what is this movie? What is it? What happens when you watch this movie? Um, <laughs> and then I watched it on VHS when uh, my mother and I were staying at a, at a friend of hers house um, in, in the in the country, kind of in Amherst, Massachusetts. And I remember I watched it by myself. I remember watching it by myself. <laughs> and then I remember very distinctly later in the day or even the next day, my my mom was looking at me and she was like, is something wrong? Like, are you sick? Like, what's happening? And I, and I was like, I, I, that movie, like, like I couldn't articulate it. And yeah. I, and, and there was no language I could, you know, and this is coming, you know, I had, I had said earlier, you know, there were some other Watership Down, American World in London, like these movies had sort of set a baseline of a certain kind of like nightmare inducing. Yeah. But this movie made me feel nauseous and mm-hmm. hopeless in a way that I have never experienced before or after. And, 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 and in a funny way, I mean, it's one of my favorite movies of all time and I hate how it makes me feel, <laughs> but I am so in awe of its ability to make me feel that way. Yeah. That's a way to describe it. So was there a scene like in particular or like multiple scenes that, like particularly upset you, scarred you, made you feel nauseous. It's it's funny. I think um, I, th- th- that first watching of it, because obviously you know it's very um, it's so nonlinear and so symbolic, yeah. and and you can kind of you can walk away from you can have a feeling, but you, from the movie that's very strong, and also you kind of wonder what is the wall? What does that end yeah. mean? What does yeah. it mean that they tear down the wall? What is this about? And so I was trying to wrap my head around that kind of stuff when I was a kid. And I was, I just found it like, I mean, it was so overwhelming. I mean, when I think back of me watching it, it just, all I can think about is the scene in Clockwork Orange when he's got his eyeballs yes. all open and just yeah. staring at imagery. It's like, I couldn't comprehend any of it. Like I'd never been in a relationship, let alone a sexual relationship. So I had no idea what this is even about i think the imagery of the mother when she's at her most sort of surreal and animated and she's just this like giant breasty thing squeezing the tiny baby like i think that at that time that really fucked with me and like the flower animation but it's also the flower animation yeah the flower animation is you know it's i was listening to the cartoonist gerald scarf talk about that and each one of those pictures took him days to draw like in the animation like every one of the 12 pictures a second was like drawn with crayon and pencil and shaded and it's you know just this horrific thing that encapsulates a toxic relationship through flowers interacting and transforming in this violent sexual beautiful horrific i mean just in like a minute and a half he captures like a lifetime of toxic relationship feelings um and so, so yeah it's it's so weird because uh this is the second time in two weeks that we've had genital looking flowers because we just talked about last week um little shop of horrors and i made a comment uh-huh. that that plant looks like a penis when it when it's a baby uh-huh. and now we literally have <laughs> this penis and this vagina plant that are like fighting there's like penetration it's like erotic and terrifying and in my roads the thing i wrote was like straight sex is scary because it looks t- absolutely terrifying yeah oh it's definitely i mean i think that that's you know kind of the core of the movie is that 
you know, there's, it's like, it's so nonlinear, but there's all of the, the thing that makes it so wonderful is the interconnection from one image to the other that, that is talking about how scary being vulnerable, being in a love or sexual relationship, like how that kind of experience can make you the most miserable, but if you're not prepared for it. You know, and and so there's like there's I mean, this is why I love this movie so much is that it will have these moments where, you know, I think if you watch the movie casually, you're like, I don't know, it seems like a collection of images. But but I love it. Like my thing with this movie is like I I want people to talk about it more as a movie than as a progressive rock band's project. Yeah. Because cinematically it's so powerful. So there will be scenes when it's like he is looking out the window as a little kid and seeing his first naked woman. And then it cuts to his wife in bed, looking at him in the same eye line. Yes. But he's not looking at her. And it's like, you, you know, it's like the, you're tracing like a psychological map of his. And then, you know, there's a scene where he's, he's at this horrific, awkward middle school prom and he sees this really tall girl across the way. And he looks at her and then it intercuts with his wife, who's now in a different city, looking at a man that she's about to have an affair with. And then he's dancing. The little kid is dancing with the girl and the wife is having sex with the man. It's like the, and then and, and of course, the scene where he's being sort of held by his mother and, and then it's intercut with him getting married. And you're like, oh, my God, like every experience that this person has had around women are all like the same, like he's having the same emotional response to everybody and he can't escape from that. Like, of course he, like he's so broken and all of these relationships are toxic because he hasn't solved what to do. And and I think the movie in all of the themes that it's about, it's always doing things like that where you're sort of chasing somebody's psychological map in a way that I think is so painful. That's part of what gives it this like heaviness that I couldn't comprehend as a kid, but I could feel yeah um the thing you know the thing is is that this is the first time i i saw the movie um and i I watched it i ended up watching it twice because the first time i was like i don't really get what is going on it's just it was like an assault it it, you describing it as like the clockwork orange scene is like how it felt when i first watched this movie because i'm like i don't know what is going on i just know that it's making me feel all sorts of different things and so i ended up watching it again um tonight when i got off work and I was like, okay, I'm seeing all of the like cinematic aspect of it because I, I'll be honest, I remember seeing this bot, this, uh, as a VHS as a kid in like, uh, the blockbuster, the, you know, local movie, movie stores. And like, it was never in the horror section, but the cover was terrifying. Like, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a freaky ass cover, but like, I was like, ah, that's just a music. That's just like a, a music video is what I anticipated it as a kid. And so like, I've, I've never, I've never sought it out. And I was so happy to finally watch it because the, there is a lot, there's a lot going on in this at not only from a music perspective, but also from like you were talking about a cinematic. I, the second time I watched it, I got it. I saw all these, these crossfades and like, um, Going to one of the most effective for me was the another brick in the wall moment where it's like the kids are on a conveyor belt. And then by the time they go through this, this change, they're tied to their desk and they're wearing this like faceless mask that like you can kind of still see their eyes underneath it as like they, they look horrified. But like their facial expressions is is just blank. And I, I was like, oh, there's some really interesting things going on here. And then, like, when he's imagining in the rebelling, again, we get the crossfades with, like, 
the rebellion of, of the kids, but also protests and the war scenes. And there's so there's all of this like stuff kind of coming together in a very, very cinematic way. Yeah, I find that super fascinating. Like that that moment you're talking about when it's like they're the the little kids throwing things and breaking windows and lighting the school on fire, and then the rock fans kind of overwhelming the stadium and getting busted by the cops, and then the fascist, you know, uh, sort of army rising mm-hmm. up and causing a riot. And 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 my sensibility when when watching that, when watching the way they're interconnected is it's like, those are the same people like these kids in, in their school are being, are having the, the poetry, you know, and, and, and selfhood stripped away from them by a system that, that wants to exert a kind of fascism. So the only thing they can do then is freak out. And the only thing that's available to them later when they become adults is to freak out. And, 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 and it's like, I think that's what, you know, the, the movie is about, the evolving like cycle of violence and abuse, like the teacher is abusive to him. And so he's going to grow up to become a nightmare, you know, right. and, and, and maybe the teacher is a nightmare because of his relationship to world war two. And it goes on and on and on backwards and forwards in time simultaneously. Yeah. We've, we've talked a lot on this podcast about generational trauma and that is definitely um, an aspect of this movie that um, I saw continually played out through through all the flashbacks of him as a kid dealing with like trying to be a poet. And his teacher is saying, uh, the lad reckons himself a poet, absolute rubbish, get on with your work. And so it's like, it's, it's this stripping, like you said, of, of their kind of like personality and just focusing them on work and, and being mindless pawns and some kind of like corporate machine that would ultimately grind them up and spit them out and then i guess feed them to other kids because like there's the idea of like if you don't eat your meat you can't have any pudding and then we see that the kids are being turned into meat oh that's <laughs> fascinating yeah that's such an interesting connection it's just it's so it's so weird but what, what do you think about it mary beth what if, what was your thoughts watching this right now so i i grew up with um pink floyd um, my stepdad was a drummer and he would play along to their music quite often. Um, I had a lot of very vivid memories of my stepdad blasting this album and playing drums along with it and being very annoyed and not appreciating the musical education I was receiving as a child. Um, (laughs) And I also had a connection to it because my stepdad's brother, um, Butch, who I call my uncle because he was basically my uncle, um, died of a heroin overdose and he really loved Pink Floyd and we would listen to a lot of Pink Floyd after his death. So like I have a lot of like very intense emotional connections to Pink Floyd, but I never saw the wall, I think because I had like so many connections to the, to the actual music and also, um, I think I had seen clips, especially of the flower, the animated flower. I had that, like I'd never seen this movie before, but that, that sequence was somehow in my head and I don't know how, but again, one of those things where I think I probably seen it online or something. And so this is my first time seeing it. And, um, it was a lot, especially for this current moment about like social isolation, social, social, social isolation and kind of like going down a rabbit hole when you're stuck alone, which is unfortunately rather relevant to our current uh, moment. But I also was so impressed with the seamless transition between live action and animation and back out. Yes. Um, I love animation. Um, I think horror, well, I know this isn't necessarily a horror movie, but like horrific animation I think is so important in terms of being a place 
to experiment with form and experiment with terror and experiment with like what horror can look like in different forms. And so those moments were so striking to me just, and especially the way that like, there was a moment I think where it was like a hammer was something transformed into a hammer and then the hammer smashed into the glass and it became like the the kids looting the the front of the store. Yeah. And that scene really stuck out to me just in the way that, this movie like ahead of its time was seamlessly integrating these different mediums to create this intense cinematic experiment, experiment, well, experiment and experience that is gorgeous. And again, like it shouldn't just be thought of as like a visual album or music videos. Like it really is a cinematic and experimental cinematic experience that really is quite moving. Yeah. <laughs> That's my rant about the whole. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, you know, I, I, as I've seen it over the years, I, I've connected it like visually to other things that I love and, and other things that, um, that, that feel like it has a similar vibe. Like, um, you know, there's, there's the scene where they, they put the, he, he puts a bullet down on the train tracks and he's in this tunnel. And of course the tunnel it looks like a brick wall and it's this like sort of terrifying place and he's waiting to see what will happen if the train runs over the bullet and then when the train goes by it's like hands are coming out of it and it's horrific faces mm-hmm. and it reminds me so much of the scene in Jacob's Ladder yes when he sees the the the, the train go by and um you know Jacob's Ladder is probably one of the most important movies to me in my life also a movie that i think beautifully depicts what trauma feels like. Yeah. And what I found out, what I realized only recently, which I hadn't known, is that it's the same cinematographer. Peter Bijou oh, was wow. the cinematographer of The Wall and Nine and a Half Weeks and Time Bandits. So like oh, wow. all of these movies that are from this this like 80s, this period of like 80s, you know, kind of like darkness and surrealism and like disturbing dramas. He was there shooting them. And um, not no, not the cinematographer, the um, the production designer. It was the same production designer okay. as, as Jacob's Ladder, as well as Angel Heart and the Hunger. And it was the same cinematographer as Time Bandits. It's like this group of British artists who were inventing this like language that took us so intensely out of the seventies, the kind of washed out seventies Altman, you know, zoom lenses and into this like super strong, everything is like backlit and we're in this like elevated worlds. And it's like, I, I hadn't realized until going back to it, how much like the artists kind of teaming up to make this movie were responsible for so much of that stuff. Yeah. And it, it's, it's weird because, um, it, it's funny to me because I post on Twitter because I'm, I, it's hard to find this movie to stream. Yeah. Um, and so like I, I, I found it. Um, streaming somewhere and I'm like watch I watched the beginning part of it and I'm like this doesn't look like it was made in 1982 and that's why I tweeted out is like is this the right movie because like uh-huh. I watched the wrong one because it didn't it it looks so ahead of its time like yeah. it opens up with the very like um in the in the like the hotel room the hotel lobby and it's like so stark and so clinical and so clean and it, it I'm like, I, it really hit me as like, I, I don't think this was made in 1982. And I just kept thinking that as I was watching, watching the movie, it's so, it's so ahead of its time. And it, it makes sense that, um, it has, it shares like the production designers and, and cinematographers from these other movies that are making such surreal and ahead of their time, um, cinema. It's, it's, it's crazy to think about yeah, the, that. The, um, yeah. The, 
that opening, uh, the, uh, yeah, the opening in the, in the hotel and the kind of the whole first five minutes of this movie, I think are like really, you, you can really study like some brilliant, brilliant cinematic language in the first few minutes because like it, it starts when you're going through this hallway in the hotel, which is essentially, that's like the present. That's what the movie is, right? He's in this Mm -hmm. hotel. He's undergoing this experience as memories. So you're starting there in the present. It immediately cuts to his father when his father was alive in world war two getting killed, which is like the ultimate past. That's the furthest back. The story goes like he's a baby. Pink is a baby and his father dies. And then it goes to, you know, as as the song kicks in, you see him in his like fascist leader form on the stage singing a, a song that will be reprised at the end. So it's showing like in the first five minutes, it's shown you the origin, the very origin of his psychotrauma, where he is now and where he's headed as the ultimate tragedy. Yeah. And then it's like the whole movie now is going to connect the dots. Well, how do we go from this dead World War II soldier to this fascist leader? Let's take a look through the crazy psychogeography of this man and and find out. And I think it's just like so beautiful how it encapsulates that in a way that at first might feel so arbitrary and shaken up. And then you realize kind of, you know, that it's showing you the entire life story in this moment. Yeah, it's like a conglomeration of like the past, present and future. Um, with and, and the first time I watched the the movie, I totally didn't pick up on any of this. And I, I just, I literally was felt like I was being assaulted in my, with like a video and audio cacophony. Um, but like looking back on it and then being able to like separate myself and watching it again, I, I love how this opening bit is basically a thesis for the, for the rest of the movie. And I kind of, I wrote it down in my notes about how this kind of feels relevant to today's online culture in some ways about how demagogues are like built mm-hmm. by isolating themselves. And cause he, he built this wall of based off of all of the like horrors of his, of his past, the, the, his father and, and his relationship with women and his, his mom and, and school. And he builds himself up in this self isolation and then he doesn't really have an outlet. And then he becomes the thing that he hates and it just it seems like it seems like it has a lot to say about um the current demagogues that we <laughs> seem to have oh my god yeah running around yeah absolutely yeah. i mean that the irony that his father died fighting nazis right and he becomes a nazi you know like the right. the trauma produces its own effect yeah yeah oh god <laughs> <laughs> so the the other animation that really stuck out to me though going base kind of piggybacking off that is is when i i love how they they talk about how pink's mom will she won't let you fly but she might let you sing so it gives this idea of like this caged bird um like why i know why the caged bird sings like that kind of aspect to it and then it transitions into this dove animation where you see like the dove floating out. And I was like, Oh, it's getting, no, it explodes. <laughs> and yeah. there's like, there's the, the kind of Nazi bird that's like tearing the flesh out of uh, the land where it like literally bleeds. Oh, I was just going to say that's the very fascinating part. <laughs> yeah. But like what, what I loved about that is that the bird eventually crashes, but its structure is left behind. So it kind of is saying that, like, while the war might be over, the foundation of that's like plaguing the land is still there because it it literally is this this figure that has become this monolith on the on the ground. 
And I thought that the idea of like this, the UK flag kind of like breaking away until it was nothing but a bloodied cross. And then the whole place is filled with these crosses. It's, it's just such a, there's so much striking imagery going on in this. Yeah. I think I was like very taken by like how much was being done in this. And I got a little bit overwhelmed. I was like, they're just take holy shit. Like, I don't think I understood how political the wall was until I watched. Like, I thought it was more personal rather than political, if that makes sense. I mean, I yeah. think what's, what makes it so beautiful is that it's both. That yeah. it's, it's about both, like, one individual's, like, psychological substructure turning him into a fascist or turning him into kind of a monster. And also about society going in that direction like at the same time in the same story as a result of like he was traumatized because his one individual father died but all of england all of those people from that generation were so terribly traumatized by having come from that landscape and 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 that that, i mean you know i i totally agree with you about the the bird like you, you you know there's this moment of respite you're like, oh, a bird. Oh, thank God. And then it becomes horrible. And there's all these other, you know, th- there's that other animation where it's like, I, it's like, it goes from like a face is maggots, but then it becomes like a woman, a beautiful woman who turns into a ice cream sundae. And then it becomes a <laughs> hypodermic needle that's bleeding. And it's like, I think that I, I find so much, I, I have such a relationship to what, what that feels like in terms of if you have something traumatizing in your in your psychological structure that can't that you haven't resolved everything that's pleasurable will turn to death in your perspective of it like an ice cream sundae will suddenly look like a syringe full of blood or a you know it's heroin whatever the fuck that's mm-hmm. even supposed to be yeah. like like death like the like a beautiful dove it was still being it it was flying because a cat was trying to eat it and then right. it transforms into a nazi warplane it's like you like this character is so damaged that that nothing can be quiet like he can't have a moment of quiet where something is nice it's only ever turning to death and i relate to that and i and i feel like what the movie is really challenging us to say like okay how do you how do you get out of this you know like he he's in so much pain that the only way he can numb himself to his agony is to become a fascist leader that beats and kills people like he has to inflict his personal pain he couldn't figure out how to just get through it he couldn't just go to therapy he has to like destroy everybody that's the only way he can feel better yeah and i think that that is mary beth when you're talking about like you know where we are today it's like i i think that's such a crucial understanding that like this this drive of nihilism and fascism comes from generational trauma abuse like tiny tiny things i mean i you know there's this moment constantly throughout the movie they're showing he's in a rugby field right there's this thing he's running there's a rugby field um or maybe it's a soccer field it's it's like this this recurring image where he's like Mm -hmm. in silhouette and he's running to you and it and you're like why why is this so important in the movie and then i felt like the denouement of the movie is when you realize oh he was running through the field and he finds that rat he finds this like diseased rat that he tries to nurse back to health and he puts it in a box but then it dies yeah and and it makes him sick and i I was like i think you could break down the like my synopsis of this movie would be a young boy tries to save a dying rat (laughs) the only thing 
that he's the first thing he's ever loved and he fails to save it and it dies. So he becomes a fascist leader. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, like, like his, his sort of like attempt at empathy is such a failure. (laughs) It's so, (laughs) it's so horrific. And, um, and then it's just this like straight line from that, from a failed relationship with a rat all the way to like, let's murder everybody. (laughs) You know? Yeah. The progression of things. As, as you do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. So, final verdict on the wall. This is our yes. new segment. This is our new segment, listeners. We're going to give a final verdict on the, each film. So, Mary Beth, um, how many genital plants out of five do we give Pink Floyd the wall? <laughs> um, I will give it a four and a half plants four out of five. And do you think, what do you think about it now as, as a, well, I guess you didn't see it as a kid, but yeah. like now as. I, I'm, I'm glad I didn't see it as a kid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of the imagery and the importance would have been lost on me and I only would have focused on the horrific. Um, I think it is a surprising, like it is a way ahead of its time piece of cinema that is really relevant to now. And I think people would benefit from watching it if they can find it. It is on Vimeo if you want to watch it. And I think it has a lot to say about toxic masculinity and mental illness and the need to address it and the need for empathy and the struggle for empathy. Those are my final thoughts. Terry, what about um, you? You know, the, fir- the first time I, I mean, cause I watched it twice in, in two days and the first time I probably <laughs> would have given it. What an experience by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I probably would have given it like three and a half uh, general plants out of five, but the second time it's, it's five. Once I understood what it's trying to do. Um, I think, I think it's a brilliant piece of cinema and I, I, it's a shame that the only streaming copy that I could find was a really bad, uh, low definition copy. I really think this would be ripe for some kind of collector's edition Blu-ray. Um, but yeah, that that's my thoughts. What about you, Adam? You have the final word. What's your rating? And do you have any final thoughts on on the wall? Yeah. For, for, first of all, I agree. It's a crime that there's no Blu-ray. I I bought the a DVD um, special edition of it just just to watch for this, you know, so we could talk about it. Mm-hmm. I it's it's funny because I had seen it obviously a couple times when I was a lot younger, and then I hadn't seen it for a while, but I always knew that I loved it, and I always knew that it fucked me up. It was the first movie I watched after I finished shooting. Daniel isn't real. I oh, came back from wow. New York oh, wow. and, it, and it was playing at the Arrow Theater in LA and I had never oh, seen shit. it on a big screen. And um, so I came back and watched it and it's like, I mean, I love, I loved it ever, even more than ever having been through the process of really trying to make a movie with psychological connections and everything. Seeing, you know, I think I really got it that time. And I also realized how much I'd ripped it off without, you know, like there's so much stuff at the end of Daniel where he's like, there's kind of a cosmic brick wall at the end of a doorway and he's trying to smash through it. And, you know, it's, I was like, oh yeah, I, I stole that. Um, and the, and the way that sort of like past childhood witnessing of death and horrors comes back to get you and it's in your head. And, and so I think that I would have to fly my Nazi war plane all the way into the, flower vagina and give it five (laughs) out of five (laughs) i love that that's awesome Uh, um all right well well thank you so much um adam for joining us to talk about pink floyd the wall and introducing us to it it was um quite an experience uh where can our listeners find you and what do you have coming up 
so I'm on Twitter at Adam Egypt, and I love talking to people there. Like I've really tried to be helpful as a filmmaker who can like offer advice or words of comfort or share what my process is. So I invite people to find me there and have, try to have that kind of conversation with me. And um, yeah, I'm finishing this movie, Arch Enemy, and uh, that'll hopefully be out sometime around October. And I've just started working on another movie and my creature designer sent me Ooh. some insane sculpts today of some new creatures. So hopefully I can get the uh, next movie going soon. Also, once we get out of the quarantine which yes. I'm sure we will we will for the most part get through. I hope so. Like that positive thinking. <laughs> um so also Daniel isn't real is is hitting shutter on uh March 26th and um the folks at Shutter are so cool that they um have given us a code that you can use to get a 14-day free trial. So if you use the promo code SCARD, all caps, that would be S C A R R E D, you can get 14 days um free to watch Shutter and you can watch Daniel isn't real and also Adam's first f- feature uh some kind of eight which is I don't know if it's premiering uh, if it will be already on there or if it's premiering the same date as Daniel isn't real, but I it think will it be is. Available. Yeah, I think it's the same day and it, it hasn't it? been streaming for a long time. So yeah. I love Shudder and I, I love what they do. They're such a great group of people. Yes, they're wonderful. But yes, Scarred promo code and we'll put that in the show notes. Um, but yeah, go watch this movie. Yes, please watch this movie. Um, so you've heard from us listeners, but we want to hear from you. Um, what was your experience with The Wall? Send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us directly on Twitter at scarredpodcast. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter, uh, the both of us on Twitter. I am at MB McAndrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. Like I said, make sure to follow the show's podcast on Twitter as well. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to Steve Barnold for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Stay safe, everyone. And more importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. 
ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>